Uh, I'm Dan. I'm one of the leaders here. Good to see you. Good to welcome you also. And uh, we're, we've just started this new series. Luke kicked it off for us a couple of weeks ago. We're calling it Going Forward. It's really looking at the letter, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that we read in the New Testament. And I'm calling this message today, The Kind of Christians Who God Uses to Change the World. Because that's who he wants you and I to be. Isn't that exciting? Amen. So we're going to read from uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe sufferings with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Even before we get going on these verses today, I just love Paul's introduction to these verses. He doesn't introduce himself as Paul, the anointed church leader, the apostle. He calls them brothers and sisters. And there's a couple of really important points just for us to to understand as we get going in these verses today. Do you know the primary relationship that God wants you and I to have with people that we would consider leaders in the Christian faith is one of just brothers and sisters. That's who God has called us to be. And sometimes you can find yourself getting a little weird around leaders. But actually, God calls us to relate to them in very ordinary ways. And also, we we read that phrase, brothers and sisters. Isn't it great that the church is just the family of God? And this is probably the one place in the world where men and women can just enjoy really ordinary, pure relationships with one another in this sense of being brothers and sisters together. Even if you're not married here today, you can enjoy friendship with those who are brothers and those who are sisters as well. Now, as I read these verses today, It got me thinking. We we use these five phrases around King's Church sometimes to talk about the kind of church God calls us to be. Can we just put those on the screen for a minute? Uh, We we talk about being a church for all kinds of people, a church for all of Edinburgh, to be a church where all of us are all in with our hearts and lives for Jesus, to be a church that preaches all of the gospel in word and in spirit, and to be a church that goes into all of the world. Now, here's the exciting thing. As I read these verses from 1 Thessalonians, you can put it back on the verses if you like, that I discovered that the Thessalonian church believed in all five of those alls as well. In fact, we didn't invent those, they did. And, uh, you know, that's slightly disappointing. I thought that was us being creative. But, you know, that, that, this is exactly what they did. Do you want me to prove it to you? Yeah, I'm, oh man, this is a tough crowd today, guys. My goodness. Now, here we are. We're gonna... So in... Um, in, uh, in Acts 17, where you read the, the start of the church in Thessalonica, you find this, that it says, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. It was a diverse church for all kinds of different people. That's the kind of church they were. 
they were a church for all of, not all of Edinburgh, obviously, they were a church for all of Macedonia, because Paul said this in verse 7 of the verses we read. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That was kind of the whole of Greece, as we might know it today. It was a church where they were all in. Because in verse 9, Paul tells us that the report about them was that they tell of how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their lives had been changed. They were a church that certainly believed in all of the gospel because Paul said, our gospel came not only to you simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction in verse 4. And then in verse 8, he shows that it's a church that went into all the world because he says, your faith in God has become known about everywhere. Isn't that amazing? How one little young church somewhere in the Mediterranean is having such a massive impact. Do you know that's the potential of every local church in Christ? That's the potential of this church all over the world. It's remarkable to think that way. But here's what Paul said about it. He said, he said the Lord's message rang out from you. So it has that sense, uh, your translation might say the, the word of the Lord went forth from you or something, but it has this sense of echoing out of you. If you were to shout into a valley and to hear an echo back, you'd have this sense of repetition and repeat and, and the, the voice going forth. I think the NIV uh, accurately kind of translates this, the Lord's message ringing out from you. It's like a bell being sounded. I don't know if you, any of you read the Narnia books. Yeah, some of you, yeah, it's getting old, old-fashioned now, isn't it? In the first book of the series, there's a couple of characters called Diggory and Eustace, and they find themselves in a world frozen in time. Everything has stopped. And in the middle of that world, they find a bell with a hammer just waiting to be rung. And Diggory, he strikes the bell. And rather than it just going... That wasn't very... Anyway, ding. rather than just going ding... He found it went ding, but then it got louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. And that bell woke up that entire world frozen in time. You know, the potential of the church, the potential of this church and any church that follows Jesus is that their voice goes to the ends of the earth and wakes up a sleeping world that needs to be woken to the power of Jesus and his gospel. Now, here's the other interesting thing Paul says. In these verses, as he's described this wonderful church and how they're just beginning to have this massive impact, he says, you know what, don't have a lot to say to you. Have you ever met a church leader that's met a group of Christians and says, nothing to say here, it's going so well? Well, that's exactly what Paul said to the church in Thessalonica. He said, it's going really well, keep going. Do you know... There's a default that we're to understand about the grace of God. That is this, that sometimes God will need to speak things into our life. Sometimes there'll be things where we go off track. There'll be, sometimes there'll be issues that, that, that he needs to address in us. But do you know a lot of the time, God just looks at you and me and he says, it's going well. It's going well. Keep going. I feel like some of you need to hear that today. Some of you are just feeling under the cosh and you feel like God must be against you all the time. God wants to speak into your life and say, unless you hear otherwise from me, I, th- I think this is going really well. You know, Paul had that confidence when he spoke to the church in Thessalonica. They were young Christians. He'd been bundled away in a hurry after he'd just seen them come to Christ. 
because his life was at risk and their lives were at risk. So he got taken away very quickly. But he was confident in the outcome in their life. Luke talked all about this last week because they were chosen by God. They, God was at work in them. Philippians 1 verse 6, another situation where Paul finds himself in prison and unable to do ministry with the church. He says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the power of God at work in your life. The seed that has been sown will come to pass. It will bear fruit in times to come. In fact, you could argue the case, well, Paul does write some pretty strong letters in the New Testament. He doesn't say to all Christians, fine, just keep going. You, know, you could look at the, the, the letters to the Corinthians. You think there's a lot he says to them. You could look at the church, churches in Galatia and think, well, he seems to have a lot to say to them. The interesting thing in both of those cases is that both of them were departures from the grace of God. The Corinthian church were abusing the grace of God and the Galatian churches were denying the grace of God. And in both cases saying, come back to the grace of God as it's meant to be. Safeguard this in your life. The grace of God that he loves us, that he knows us, he accepts us in Christ. And he's here to encourage us today. And let's, um, okay, so let's look at where they came from and where they went to. So, what's that? It's a circle. Let's call it here. And uh, let's put this up here. What, what do you think this is? There. Exactly right. And how do you get from here to there? You obviously draw a straight line with an arrow on it. Now, these verses tell us something about the here, where the Thessalonians were before they met Paul and before they met Jesus. And uh, here's some of the things that we, we read about them. That He says, how you turned from idols to the living God. Idols are shorthand for a whole lifestyle that was to do with being enslaved by idolatry. And they would literally have... Uh, statues and, and things that they would have in their homes. And you think, well, that's just this sort of cultural thing. No, they were deeply embedded in their lives to the point of the, the, the kind of uh, idols that they would have would be things that they thought would bring them prosperity or things that would bring them fertility. There'd be things like emperor worship. You might have a statue of the emperor in your home to say that you were a good citizen of the Roman Empire. And you gave tribute to Caesar. You might turn to an idol for prosperity, for protection. In return, they would require your allegiance, your devotion, your worship. Some of them, according to the teachings of the day, would require your promiscuity. You would have to act in sexual ways, to behave in, in ways that was to do with pleasing the idol that you were worshipping so that they would bring you protection and prosperity and fertility and all of the things that you wanted to go well in your life. Now, this was the reality of those things. They were statues. And in other places, Paul would refer to these things as being empty. They're man-made, they're hollow, they're deceptive. 
They reflected all of the things that the human beings who made them had. They reflected hopelessness because these idols really had no power to change anybody or anybody's lives. It was just a hope that they might, but it was absolutely hopeless. And here was the big issue about this, that although you might think that these things were doing something good in your life that were having some effect, you had no assurance of it. And Paul uses this word at the end of the phrases we read today, that these people remained under God's judgment, his wrath. These things, the idols, they didn't do anything about the main issues in people's lives. They didn't help one little bit. Now, where did they get to? Well, here's the exciting thing. Paul said, you've been chosen by God. Verse 4. He says, you've discovered truth. He says, you've, you've turned away from idols to, to, to serve the true and living God. They've found themselves useful. They found a sphere of service to serve the living God. And they've found hope in a saviour who they're waiting for to come from heaven again, who is alive from the dead. These idols were dead. Jesus is alive. Now, here's the thing about this lifestyle, as you contrast it to this one. Paul would say about this one, relatively to this one, he said, you know what? This was easier because actually nobody was on your back. As long as you were worshipping the emperor, as long as you were serving the idols, then there was nothing too much to worry about. Not to matter it didn't actually work, but nobody bothered you. This one, he says, is hard because suddenly everybody's on your back. Everybody's trying to discourage you, but he says you welcome the word with joy in the Holy Spirit. So although it was hard, there was massive amounts of this word, joy. And with all of that comes this beautiful hope of eternal life in place of the judgment of God. They got from here to here. How did they get from here to here? Jesus. Don't you hate it when people ask you a question that can have many, many different words as the answer? Jesus, God, grace, all of those things happened in their lives. And what was just an ordinary group of people who knew nothing about God suddenly found themselves as being commended by the Apostle Paul as having really mature Christian faith because they'd embraced this so thoroughly. Now, I want to look in the remainder of our time together at three catalysts for Christian growth. Who here wants to mature in their Christian faith rapidly? Me. Anybody here want a few shortcuts? Yeah, I I would like some shortcuts as well. Well, there's three things in these verses that tell us how they got from here to here. Obviously, God got them there, but there were three attitudes of their heart that Paul commended that got them from one place to another, from here to there. If you want to get from here to there today, if you want to get to mature Christian living today, then these are the three things I'd like you to think about today. 
And I'm going to ask you a question at the end of each section, maybe two questions at the end of the first one. And I want you to think about those things. You can think about them now if you're kind of a, a quick processor. You can process it as I'm talking. And otherwise, you can think about it during the week. But here's the first thing that they did. They were fast learners. First point, they were learners. He said in verse 6, this is the thing he loved about him. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. This is how he commends them. On this journey, he says, well, this is one of the things that you did well. You, you were learners. You had the big L plates on you. In those early days, you were just like, teach me everything you can about Jesus. We could split this into two phrases. Let's start with the end of the sentence. You became imitators of the Lord. That's a nice, easy place to start. They loved Jesus. They loved what Jesus did. And they said, tell us about Jesus. They'd say to Paul, tell us about Jesus. Tell us the stories about Jesus. Tell us about the gospel. And they'd learn and learn and learn. Do you know, your life and mine is defined by our love for Jesus and his work in us and us getting hold of the fact that he's the most amazing role model we could ever have. In fact, the Bible says that he's making us like him. That's what true Christian maturity looks like. It's to look like Jesus. This world says true maturity is to to be a better version of yourself. Christian maturity is to look more and more like Jesus. The more mature you are, it's to look more like him, more loving, more truthful, more serving, demonstrating his great love. I once heard the story of a a sculptor who had a massive block of marble and a chisel and a hammer. And somebody called out to him as he was chiseling. They said, "What, what are you doing? He says, I'm making a horse. And the guy watching said, well, that sounds really complicated. You know, that, you must be very, very skilled to be able to make a horse out of that block of marble. And he just shrugged his shoulders. The sculptor he said, well, not, not really, said. I just have to chisel off everything that doesn't look like a horse. Do you know, what God's doing in your life is he's chiseling off everything that doesn't look like Jesus to make you more like Jesus. He's making you an imitator of the Lord. People used to wear uh, those bracelets back in the 80s. What would Jesus do? That's the refrain of every Christian as they walk through their offices and their schools and their universities. What would Jesus have me do here? Ask yourself that question. And, you know, part of that is getting a bigger view of who Jesus is. I once heard of an old preacher who was preaching to a congregation and he was in his very elderly years. And he confided in his congregation. He said, he said, when I was younger, he said, I had many heroes in my life, many sports heroes. And he said, I had the privilege of getting close to some of those people and observing them firsthand how they lived. And he said, here was my observation. The closer I got to these big, big men, the smaller they became. And then he said, I've been walking with Jesus for 40 years now. He said, this is my experience of him. The closer I get to Jesus, the bigger he becomes. 
You know, when we stop learning, when we stop looking at Jesus, we stop learning. If you find yourself today feeling a little cold, a little jaded, a bit like, yeah, I know what Jesus is like, I want you to look at him afresh. I want you to encourage you to read the Gospels afresh. I want you to encourage you to read simple books. If you're looking for a simple book to read, um, Christ Our Life by Mike Reeves is a brilliant book. It's just very short. I only recommend short books because they're the ones that I read on the whole. And it would just help you just see Jesus in more and more magnificent ways so that you can say, like the Thessalonians, that we're here imitating Jesus. He's amazing. But you know, there's uh, another shortcut that, that Paul gives us in these verses. So he says, you became imitators, not just of the Lord, but of us. He said, this is how you matured so quickly in your faith, Thessalonians. It wasn't that you just were like sold on the Jesus bandwagon of let's be like him, but you understood that Jesus is so far ahead of us in every area that we also need some other role models in our life to help us understand what our life could look like a few steps from now. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Here's how we grow as learners. We learn from godly mentors who God brings into our life. Now, mentors and leaders, of course, are not perfect. But the understanding is that they followed Jesus long enough to have learned a few things along the way that you could learn. I don't know about you, but sometimes God brings people into my life who, who challenge me. People who I think, I'd, you know, I'd rather spend a little less time with you because every time I'm with you, I just get slightly aware that I need to change. I remember when I first went to university, I know some of you here at university just started a few weeks ago. And uh, I remember when I first went to university, when I was 19 years old, and I, I went along to a church and uh, I, I, I kind of loved bits of it. And there was other bits of it that I found really challenging. Some of the teaching, I thought, I, I don't agree with this. I'm not sure that's what the Bible says. And I, but I felt like God told me to just keep going there. And I'd go each week and I'd find another thing. I thought, oh, is that really what the Bible says? But the interesting thing was I found that over that first year, my attitudes changed. I became a learner. And I discovered that actually some of the things that I had such a, a difference about were things that I really needed to grow in and change. I don't know if you heard that Mark Twain quote. He says, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. <laughs> you know, if we're to grow in Christian maturity, we need to have enough humility to understand that we're not the finished article, that we have so much to learn. And often the things we'll have to learn are from people that we think have got it wrong. But actually, as we study the word, we understand what uh, God would have, would have us learn. Beware of the echo chambers of the soul. People who just agree with you. People who will just say, I agree with what you say. That's the kind of world we live in these days. We need desperately input from outside. Let me ask you a couple of questions then to think about. You could write these down or type them into your phone if you like. Here's the question. What is my strategy in learning from Jesus? What's my number one strategy in learning from Jesus? Here's the second question. Who are the people that I listen to and learn from about Jesus? 
If you put a blank line at the end of that, you could answer that one. Think about that one. Think about it now. How do I learn from Jesus? What's my number one strategy? And who am I learning from? Who are the people God's put in my life? It could be they're totally oblivious to the fact that they have that role in your life. That's not a bad thing, by the way. It could be they need some encouragement. You might want to tell them. But who has God put there? And don't be surprised that um, you'll be that to other people as well. We'll come on to that. Let me just say one more thing on that. Um, In a couple of weeks' time, on the 26th of October, we've got an enormous privilege of learning from some of the most remarkably humble, gifted leaders that I know. We've got a guy called Phil Wilfew coming up from Bedford, and uh, a guy from, uh, called Mike Betts, who uh, leads a whole uh, network of churches right across the world. They are remarkable people to learn from. If you want to get a bigger heart for God, a bigger heart for Jesus and his kingdom, I really want to encourage you to be at that day. It's going to be hugely exciting. Um, we're, we're aware that we often, as a church, we can't often engage with many of the kind of conferences that our family of churches puts on because they're too far away or at the wrong time of year. That's why we're running this conference, so that en masse we could be there together with many other New Frontiers Scottish churches to come and be together and to learn about God and his kingdom. So there's going to be some great children's work. There's going to be a a brilliant youth stream that's happening as well. And I really hope that you'll be able to get along to that. I'm certainly going to be there taking as many notes as I can because I want to learn just like the Thessalonians did. And that's an opportunity for that. So I hope you can make that. Okay, so what was the first one? Learning. Great. Here's the second one. They were welcoming. They welcomed the message, let's read that, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So here's the second thing he commended about them. Here's the second catalyst, that they welcomed the word. They welcomed the message. What was the message they welcomed? Well, if you flick into Acts 17, verses 2 to 4, it says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This, is, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. It was a simple message that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died for our sins and he rose again. But these people, they embraced it. They welcomed it. Many people rejected it. Many people pushed away and said, no, that sounds like a load of nonsense. But they took hold of it. What does it mean to welcome the message? Well, the Greek word used there is the same word that was used of Simeon in Luke chapter 2 when he embraced the baby Jesus at the end of his life, having waited for all of his life. He then took the baby Jesus into his arms. He welcomed him. That showed something of the Thessalonians' attitude in welcoming the message of God into their lives. In James chapter 1, verse 21, it uses the word there. It says, humbly welcome the word planted in you, which can save you. That, that's saying, well, to welcome something is to, it's to be humble about it and say, actually, I need this in my life. How do we therefore push the word away and not be welcoming to the word, well, we act arrogantly. 
We say, we don't need this. We, we say, actually, I've got some other opinions and thoughts. I want to just encourage you to be somebody who loves this book, who loves the Bible. Why don't you do a Simeon with this book? Why don't you hold it in your arms and be thankful? This is the word of God given to us today. This is what he's given to us. You know, in North Korea, it's against the law to own a Bible or be found in possession of a Bible. And uh, the, the punishment, if you personally get found with a Bible, is that you and your whole family is thrown in prison for the rest of your life. And you think, well, I bet that puts an end to people owning the Bible, doesn't it, in North Korea? Not so. What you find is that Christians in North Korea, they bury their Bible in, a gar- in the garden in a jar. And by dead of night, they go and dig it up and they get it out and they read it and they memorize it and they read it to their children because they value and they welcome the word. Let's be those who welcome the word in the appropriate ways in our culture. Maybe it's to understand that we need to be humble and even though there's things that we don't always understand about the word, that we love it and hold it in the deepest and the highest value. When you hear that phrase, to welcome the word, it, does it, it might remind you of a story that Jesus told about the parable of the sower. Do you remember that story? And the, the end of that story, the climax of that story, is where um, the, the seed gets sown into the good soil and they're the people who accept the word and it produces a crop of 30, 60 and 100 fold what was sown. That's what was happening in Thessalonica. They'd received the word and it was bearing massive, massive fruit in their lives. But there was three other categories of soil that Jesus talked about in that parable that negated the effect of the word of God in their lives. Do you remember what they were? The first group were people who were like seed thrown on the edge of the path. They just allowed the word to get stolen out of their lives. It was just distracted. The enemy just took it away. Another group of people were those sown amongst the rocks, and they were like those who made an emotional response. And if their emotions were feeling good, they'd love and follow Jesus. But when things got tough, they were like, Jesus isn't doing it for me anymore. So the word didn't produce fruit in their life because they didn't persevere. And then the third category was that seed sown amongst the weeds, where Jesus said, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth choked the progress and the growth of the word of God. Anxiety, the worries of this life, materialism, the deceitfulness of wealth. Both of those things require us to welcome the word of God into our lives. I encourage you to be somebody who who receives the word over and above any anxiety that you feel or any need that you might experience. The word is more than enough. His promise is more than enough. After Paul went to Thessalonica, he moved on to a place called Berea. And it was said of that church in Berea, it says, they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They were commended because they were so eager. When Paul said, it says in the Old Testament, it says this, they were looking in their Old Testament and said, does it really say that? And they're like, it does say that, we can believe it. 
I want to encourage you today, if you're uh, new to Christianity or new to church, I'd love to invite you personally along to the Alpha course this Thursday night here at King's at 7.30, because that's a place where you can eagerly discover for yourself whether the claims of the Christian faith are true or not. It's a really, really brilliant tool that so many millions of people around the world have done. Let me ask you today, are you eager in your experience of welcoming the word? So here's the, here's the question for you. Or here's the, the statement I'd like you to write. My main challenge in welcoming the word of God into my life is, and you could write your challenge. Okay? Good with that? My main challenge in welcoming the word of God into my life is dot, dot, dot. Right. Third and final. You ready? What was that one? Welcoming. Welcoming the word. Yeah. Or second. Yes. Good. Um, Third one is this, that they became examples. They exemplified the very message that they were receiving. He says, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Here's how they rocketed to Christian maturity. They did something about what they were learning. They took the word of God into their lives. They learned everything they could from all of the leaders that were inputting their lives and from Jesus. And then they put it into practice. And they said, I'm going to live this out. Do you know the potential of Christians around the world isn't based on the potential of the leaders of churches. It's based on the full body of Christ exemplifying the word of God through them. And here was the fascinating thing. He didn't give them any titles. He didn't say, it's great that so many of you have become pastors or leaders. He said, you've just become a model. I want to encourage you today to be somebody who becomes a model for other believers on how to live the Christian life. Do you think you can do that? Some people find themselves powerless unless they've been given permission to do something. But Paul never gave them permission. He never said, please would you start discipleship groups. He said, well done for modeling what you've learned. You know, so much of leadership is actually just model and example. Sure, there's a few things in church life where sometimes you, you, you read of a, of, a, of a name or a, a, an eldership function or something like that. But, you know, most of it isn't like that. Do you know, even the Apostle Paul, the, the, these weren't titles in the sense that they were used in the early church. They were, they were functions. They were commissions given by God. But when Paul went up to Jerusalem... To, visit, to meet the other apostles who he'd never met before because he became a Christian quite apart from them. And it says in Galatians 2, when he retells that story of meeting those leaders for the first time, he says, I went in response to a revelation, Galatians 2.2, 2, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. Or if you're reading the ESV, it says, I met with those who seemed influential. That's to say, when Paul went to Jerusalem, he didn't find the guys with the big crosses around their necks and say, I bet they're the apostles, or wearing the big dresses. He says, I I went and found those who seemed to be influential. The, The real leaders in a church are those who bear the most influence. They're the people who people are gathering to. And you can be 
that person. Showing people that you don't serve cultural idols of sex and money and power. But that you do serve Jesus and you're living your life in expectation of him to return. You know, um, some of you are parents here and I want to encourage you that everything you do is observed by your children. Everything. It's staggering. Nothing gets missed. Make sure that you model stuff well because not just your children but the world is watching. Sometimes people ask me, they say, Dan, why, why do you use this old-fashioned paper Bible in this day and age? You know, don't, you, don't you realize you can get it on your phone these days? I've got it on my phone as well, by the way. And do you know the honest answer to that question, why I still use a paper Bible? Do you want to know the answer? Great. Just, just for the sake of you three here. Okay. Um, <laughs> the, the, the reason I use a paper Bible is for a number of reasons. It's because I like it, first of all. And I've, I've always used the paper Bible. But here's one of the main reasons. is this, that at home with my family, they see when I'm reading the Bible and when I'm not. You see, if all they see is me just looking at my phone all the time, they don't know if I'm texting or emailing or watching YouTube or, or, or funny videos or something like that. But when they see this book moving around the house from room to room, from table to table, it sends a message to say, oh, this book seems to get read. And it's important for us to be those sorts of people who model things. Sometimes uh, things like giving, I know are kind of uh, in secret, but sometimes we'll talk to our kids about giving and how much we give in sort of loose terms because we want them to understand. We don't, when they leave home and, and hopefully follow Jesus for themselves, we don't want them to think, oh yeah, mum and dad, they never really talked about giving or how, how much we, we give to church and other things. I'd love them to know some of that information because I want us to model that to them. It's good for us to model being soft-hearted and apologizing when we need to, all of those things. Joel Virgo, who's the uh, son of Terry Virgo, who founded the family of churches called New Frontiers, he said his observation growing up when he was a child was that when his dad was under the most pressure, there would be the times when he heard his dad go into his study and pray all the more and all the more loudly. Modeling is the thing that helps us learn. Let me ask you, you being a model to those around you. Here's the question I'd love to ask you. Who are you a model for in your life? All of us have people that we're modeling something to. It might be in the workplace. It might be at home. Who are those people and what does that require of me? Okay, final slide, please. Let's put this in its context. They tell of how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. All of this, if we were living our life here, to be honest, none of this would matter. It wouldn't matter if we were learning. 
It wouldn't matter if we were welcoming the word. It wouldn't matter if we were exemplifying for other people. Because you think, well, as long as everybody's just happy and doing their thing and worshipping their own idol and just getting along fine, what this verse says is this, that Jesus is coming again. That's why everything we do in this life matters. Because there's a God who one day is going to judge the heaven, is going to judge the earth and the people of it. And therefore, these Christians in Thessalonia, like us, want to be those who are those who ring out the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, so that as many people hear as, as possible, so that as many as possible are rescued from this judgment that is to come. And there are many, many in our city and our land who need this message. And I'd love for us to just pray that it rings out from us as it did from them in the power of the word and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I want to thank you for your grace at work in our lives, that what you've begun, you will surely complete. And I want to pray, Lord, for the seeds you've planted in our lives, that you are watering them and nurturing them every day. I want to pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be those who live as learners, who welcome your word, and exemplify the change that you've brought through us to many other people. Give us courage, I pray, Lord, to to live our lives in contrast to the world around us. And please, Lord, would you keep us forward thinking on this great hope that is to come, that Jesus, you're coming again. Amen.